Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Coming up on today's episode, it's PMQ's Unpacked, but it's not just me and Tim Shipman. No, we've got a group of politics students helping us unpack uh, this week's edition with uh, Keir Starmer versus Rishi Sunak. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. The Columnists with Ali Burt, Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton on Times Radio. And we say hello to Alice Thompson. Hello, Alice. Hi. And joining me in the studio is Robert Crampton. Morning, Robert. Hi, Matt. We will talk lunches, the uh, the art of the long lunch. I suspect you've both got a good long lunch anecdote, so we'll come to that. Sure. Hold that thought. Uh, first, uh, some good news on the front of the papers. Well, on the front of the Times, anyway. Dementia drugs slows decline. Millions of Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's patients have been given hope of a cure after a drug was proven to slow the disease for the first time in history. Um this is just good news, isn't it, Alice? Well, I think it's fantastic news, but my father died last week um, and had had dementia for 20 years. So for me, it does feel particularly personal because I know what it's like. And I, I, I felt for my mother, I think anyone who's cared for someone with dementia, um, it is absolutely exhausting. And there was that survey last week saying that it's one of the most depressing things that you have to do, whereas actually looking after a grandchild is rather fun. And I just think the idea that there's anything and any breakthrough they've made, and they do seem to be incredibly excited about this one, is just fantastic, particularly for people who get dementia or Alzheimer's young. I think if you get it in your 40s, 50s, mm. 60s, it's so devastating for all the family that if they can do anything about that, I think it's very different from if you get it in your 90s. And I, I suppose that's the thing is when you said, I'm sorry to um, hear about your, Barbie. we discussed it last week, Alex, but your, your dad in particular, but for, because it, it seems unconnected to lifespan, the fact that you can live with it for 20 years and it's the people around the patient who, who suffers as much, if not more, arguably, you know, the emotional as well as the physical uh, strain that it puts on them. Well, I think the strange thing is it's almost like having an avatar because you never quite know when you say goodbye to them. I felt that with my father and I wasn't quite sure when he actually went because his mm. mind slowly drifted. So you never quite say goodbye or have those conversations that you possibly have with other diseases when you, you can talk to them before they die. We had 20 years when he was incredibly caring and lovely and would sing songs, and but he, you couldn't address him. He didn't know who you were. So it is a very strange and difficult disease, I think. So anything that makes it, you know, postpones it, particularly for those who are younger, is fantastic. And it's just, you know, it's just so welcome. But it will take a long time, I think, before um, they can actually give this to patients. Robert? Yeah, I mean, just picking up on that, I mean, it's wonderful news, obviously, but I, I note, of caution, if you read to the end of the article, uh, there are some side effects to this new uh, drug whose name escapes me at the moment, the, the drug that's had the benefit, the 27% uh, improvement in uh, slowing down the uh, onset of the disease. And I think maybe in terms of a cure for Alzheimer's, slowing down is as good as it's going to get. Yeah. You know, you can... I mean, that is, in effect, a cure if you can slow if you can slow down its onset. But it has had some side effects uh, in terms of strokes and brain bleeds. The, the, the uh, Alzheimer's UK was sounding a note of caution uh, this morning. 
uh, in the paper this morning, or this, this is a result that's been announced in San Francisco. So uh, obviously, these, the, I mean, the, the people in San Francisco, they're saying it's a momentous and historic uh, breakthrough. So that's good enough for me, given that they know about a thousand times as much about it as I do. <laughs> uh, but then Alzheimer's UK is saying, uh, just, uh, you know, we need to be cautious about this. The other thing is, and I was just having another read of the Times story, there's no mention of a price. And yes, and there was a mention um, earlier mm. today of the price, and it's astronomically expensive, I think. Mm. And that would be the problem, is that um, you wouldn't get this on insurance, I don't think. And you're already paying vast amounts to be in care homes when you get very ill. I mean, some yeah. of them, if you have one, I mean, sometimes people can become violent or can become very difficult. And, and I think it's really hard for people to look after them. And I think then if they go into homes, you can spend a huge amount of money. The idea of spending drugs money on top of that would mm. be too much for almost any family, I think. So, so however, I don't know however on balance, means. it's great on news because great we're, news. it's a disease that we've talked about as incurable. Uh, we might not have to say that in the future, so which is which is obviously excellent. And drugs can be phenomenally expensive until they're not. And actually, if yeah. given this is a problem, a yes. worldwide issue, and yeah. if every country buys loads of them, then... Uh, well, 900,000 people in the UK. The, yeah, no, that's, that's incredible. That's I mean, that's that. coming on for... One in two, 60. Two percent of yeah, the population yeah, coming on for it. And so, yeah, worldwide, it's enormous. Yeah, so hopefully that might, you know, have a knock-on. And nice to have yeah. a good news story, really, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it is <laughs> nice to have a good news story because... Um, because there's not much about. There's not much of those around. <laughs> um, uh, let's uh, unless you're having lunch in Paris. <laughs> yes, which Robert and I have done, haven't we? We have, yeah, many years ago, and we must do yeah. that again, Alice. That was thirty years ago. Yeah. Now. Thirty years ago, for the paper, we were sent to Paris in those mm. days. Come on, then, let's talk about lunches uh, because uh, <laughs> it, it is the thing that leapt out to me. This story uh, is a, it's a study. Well, it's actually, well, it's, been, it's been written up by uh, Adam Sage, who mm. is in Paris. Mm. He managed <laughs> yes. to squeeze in writing one story around his enormous lunch break. It's interesting that once correspondents go to Paris, they never go anywhere else. Charles Bremner and Adam Sage have both been there for <laughs> absolutely decades. <laughs> Usually they, these guys move around. Uh, yeah. But no, Paris... I think we should ask to go next. We could yeah. go together, Rob. That would be quite good. <laughs> that would be fun. Yeah, one of you could do mornings <laughs> and one of you could do afternoons. Uh, so, yeah, Parisians apparently are keeping their lunch break sacred, taking mm. more time out than their European colleagues. So there's a poll that's been published by the Paris Workplace Consultancy. <laughs> Uh, uh, people in Paris apparently take 67 minutes yeah. for their lunch break. Uh, 57 minutes in Madrid, 52 minutes in London. <laughs> and as Adam says, a derisory 47 minutes in Berlin. Yeah. Although I suspect most people would even think 47... You know, 47 minutes is generous. I mean, yeah. I, I go, I'm just trying to think. If you, can't, if you can't going up the stairs to the canteen, getting served at the canteen, going back to my desk, it's half an hour maximum. Yeah. Uh, so... 47 minutes for the Germans isn't... I think that's a bit lazy uh, by their standards. I mean, and I'm also surprised that the French only take 67 minutes. 1975 apparently was one hour 38 minutes. That's nearly 100 minutes, which is what I would have thought it was... Uh, I would have thought it would be more like that. But they've cut down to 67 minutes and they don't want to drop any further. Uh, in fact, I think we can speak to Anne-Elizabeth uh, Moutet, who is a French journalist, who can explain exactly what's going on in these Marvelous. 67 minutes. Uh, good morning. <laughs> good morning. Now, did I, I, I couldn't help thinking that 67 minutes, given the French are so, so sort of, you know, world champions when it comes to this sort of thing, that seemed quite short. What did you make of this survey? Um, it is short, but it's also an interesting trend back from even shorter times until COVID. Uh, and, and the great French lunch was many things. You know, you met people, you talked about things, you didn't think about the office, you went and did some shopping. It was a perfectly civilized thing. And now that, uh, you know, the shorter it got, the worse it was for actually businesses, not just restaurants, but also uh, the idea that you must just sort of, you know, stay at the office. I mean, it's equivalent to the beatings will continue until morale improves. <laughs> so uh, the, the, general, the general attitude is... Uh, this whole trend of we, we don't, people don't want to go back to their offices and they're quite quitting and those things, mostly because they realized during all this horrible time when we we're all locked up somewhere else that they didn't want to go back to uh, sort of a uh, relentless uh, uh, insistence on, 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 you know, productivity as measured by a Harry Ford uh, company in, in the 1920s. In Japan, they have a study 
study that says that um, uh, cat videos, employees who watch cat videos during office hours are actually more productive and <laughs> lunches, lunches better than cat videos. Within oh, reason. Yeah, I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure but, so, but you're right. So in this story, it claims that um, uh, from the 70s, in the 70s, it was uh, uh, what you used to have an hour and 38 minutes yeah. for lunch. And then pre-COVID 2019, it was down to 38 minutes in... in uh, in France. So do you think that that's what it is? It's sort of post-COVID people have rediscovered the joys in life and that includes a, a boozy lunch? I think, I think yes. I think people are much more careful about being boozy at lunch, uh, mostly because then you are a bit sleepy in the afternoon. Uh, oh, but most of the time, the idea is uh, we realised that it was completely uncivilised to sort of just chained to be chained to sort of a, a dare I say it Anglo-Saxon way of looking at, at productivity. Yeah. <laughs> the French, of course, still have they have this thing called the cinq à sept, which is the, means the five till seven. When they basically that's the time reserved for going off to have an affair with somebody else's partner. Now, actually, that has not been written about uh, enough, and there's far less of it. And oh, this really? Is very a... sad. Oh no! Oh, that is tragic. You should restore that as well. I think. <laughs> well, according to this survey, this is interesting. When asked what people did. Uh, during their lunch break, a third, 33% of Berliners and 32% of Londoners said they had a romantic liaison with a colleague. But only 29... 32% of people... 32% of London claim that they're uh, having a romantic what, at liaison. lunchtime? At lunchtime, no. I don't think that's happening at the time, <laughs> no, I tell you. No, for, for legal reasons, we don't want to make clear that's not happening here. Yeah, only 29% of Parisians apparently. I don't believe that. No, well, no, that's because they, 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 they wait till five o'clock, don't they? Yeah. We're still working hard at five o'clock. <laughs> or on deadline um, yeah. so, um, uh, while we've got you before I let you go Elizabeth what's the best lunch you've had the, how long has it gone on for oh well my oh. best one I... no Anne Elizabeth before I let it go <laughs> I will one, it one, of my, one of my best lunches was a four hour and a half lunch at the Crillon uh, with a fellow journalist much older than I was and uh, I came out of this thinking literally sort of first of all it was a great lunch and second uh, we had so many ideas. I mean, we, we, we wrote pieces on that lunch for, for, for a couple of weeks because suddenly, you know, we, we felt happy, euphoric, uh, well lubricated. It was great and it was good for my productivity. Hey, hey, that's what we want. Four and a half hour boozy lunches are good for productivity. You have great ideas, but you can, can you remember can you them? remember them? You have to remember to write them down. <laughs> Elizabeth Moutet, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, <laughs> thank and, you, Matt. Uh, give the biggest picture from fast. <laughs> Go on then, Alice Thompson, what, share your, your best lunch. Well, I think one of them was with Robert, actually, when we got sent out to Paris. Because, oh. I mean, in nowadays, you wouldn't do that. But we got sent out to go and have lunch in Paris by the time. We must have been, like, 22. Uh, we didn't get a huge budget. We had £10 a day. But we were allowed to spend as much as we wanted. <laughs> 10 we were then told... When was this? 1932. Yeah, 92. Wow. 92, yeah. 30 years ago, yeah. Years ago. Yeah, when yeah. We were both, like, trainees. I mean, it was... But it was fantastic. I think Robert was a much more adventurous than I was. I was we a little bit. Flirt. I was a little bit older than you, Alice. I think a little bit more man of oh, the world. Yeah. <laughs> Boulevardier yeah, in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> you should go back and see what you can get done in sixty-seven I minutes. I keep trying to sell it to, to you know yeah. who. Yeah. Uh, and she yeah. she's she hasn't bitten it. She hasn't gone for it so far. Yeah, they're too stingy now. I think. <laughs> Let's uh, move on from boozy lunches for a moment uh, and talk about well, because everything changes, doesn't it? It's not as good as the good old days. Uh, and the young people are suffering, Alice. Well, I wrote my column actually about the young Tory MPs who came in uh, at the last election three years ago with Boris Johnson and were slightly condescendingly called uh, Boris's babes. But they were an extraordinary lot. And they were very young, a lot of them. They were very idealistic. They, many of them hadn't thought they were going to get their seats. But they were a totally different type of Tory. And it seemed great that the Tory party was changing. And now a lot of them are giving up already. You know, three years later, they've already announced they want to stand down. Um, and they're all sort of, you know, in their... 20s, 30s, um, and it does just seem very depressing. Meanwhile, the old Tory MPs in their 70s and even 80s are still carrying on mm. and are in the tea rooms and are being sort of very difficult and belligerent and boorish. <laughs> and I think, you know, I talked to all these young MPs about why they were quitting, and they said, you know, they've had abuse, they've had very little help from the party. The party only seems to care about the sort of elderly now and about pensioners. And they, they can't really feel they're getting anywhere or doing anything or achieving anything. And they actually did come in to do some good. And I think they're all incredibly disillusioned now. And the story mm. you you start your column with about how they, they went from being sort of full of full of sunny optimism to being pretty gloomy now. 
Yeah, well, I actually texted one um, three years ago when I saw the picture of them all standing on the steps outside Westminster and said, congratulations. And, and I thought, actually, they'd have fun. I said, you know, you're going to have a great time. Um, mm. Just because 30 years ago they did and 20 mm. years ago, and even 10 years ago it was better than that. And um, then she saw me at the weekend, actually. We bumped into each other and she said, God, it's been absolutely awful. In fact, she was talking about Matt Hancock. She said, I might as well just go into Australia. I might as well just start eating camel's penis because, <laughs> but honestly, what we've been through has been horrendous. And, and another one, I said to her, how's it been? And she just texted that one word, which was abuse. And I just mm. thought, God, these people have gone through so much. And, I mean, we have, and it's, some of it's their fault, but you forget how relentless it's been for them for three years. And they've had no support from Downing Street. And, you know, their cabinet's pretty poor as well. Yeah, Tory party needs to be careful. I mean, the, the stat that I picked up from your column, Alice, was that only 3% of people under 25 intend to vote Tory at the next election. 3%. I mean, that's... Uh, the Tory party is... That's a rounding error. <laughs> yes. There I could mean, be none. The Tory party has survived. It's the most successful political party in the, right. ever in, the, in, 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 in democracy. Survived for 200-odd years by being adaptable. And this was an opportunity, wasn't it, for those to get people who you wouldn't expect to find in the Tory party, let alone as MPs, on board. And it seems to have uh, fluffed it uh, if they're all leaving and it's going back to its nights in the shires and, and crusty old guys in the tea room. That is not adaptability. That is that is a death sentence, really, for a, for a party. If you, if you, you know, it's, OK, you can be interested in pensioners now, but those pensioners aren't going to be around in 10, 20 years' time. And... Uh, it looks like young people are not going to uh, be voting for the Conservative yeah. Party. So that's that's they need to be they need to go back yeah, to, yeah. to what they're good at, which is adapting. And they they've missed this opportunity. The other thing that struck me in your column, Alice, was you were talking about the fact that all the basically all the old Tory duffers because they're not on Facebook or Twitter or TikTok or whatever. Mm. They're sort of obl oblivious. Maybe they're partly oblivious to public opinion, but they're definitely mm. oblivious to all the abuse that the younger, more digitally engaged. Uh, people who who really feel all that, you know, if you are in your twenties or thirties, you've grown up on social media. It's so mm. much part of your life. You're not going to, you know, it takes a lot to step away from that. But it, the older ones, they just don't, have no idea what's going on. Yeah, and they can't understand why the younger ones want to be on Twitter. But the problem is, they they feel they need to. That's they how they engage with their constituents, and it's a really important part for them. And they're trying to reach out to the next generation. Mm. The ones who've gone on TikTok are great, I think, because actually that's mm. what they need to do. But the older ones, literally, they get their PAs to print out their emails. I mean, they, some of them have just never been on a computer, as far mm. as I can see. So, so it's kind of. A, I mean, they're living in a totally different world. And. And I do think there's something strange about allowing all our MPs to carry on in their 80s because you think, you know, there must be some sort of mechanism whereby they need to be asked again by their constituency, you know, whether they, you know, whether they're, they're actually their party in the constituency want them to carry on because, I mean, some of them just do feel too old and decrepit now. Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton, they're heading off for a long lunch. Don't forget, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's PMQ's Unpacked. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. PMQ's and Pat is coming up in just a moment. But where do you listen? Do you watch along on the Times Radio YouTube channel? You can do that live from midday every week. And before PMQs today, I caught up with a group of students who listen and watch along. Let's speak to uh, Devon, Jack and Max. Morning. 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 You're all there. Very good. And your teacher, Richard Atkinson, is there as well. Hi, Richard. Uh, morning, Matt. Thanks for having us on. So who have we got? Who have we got there? We've got Jack, Max and Devon. Very good. Okay. Very good. Uh, I can only see two, two students. Anyway, we'll sort that out. Oh, hang on. There we go. Uh, so, uh, how did, first of all, Richard, how did the Politics Club all come about? And how did you end up tuning into PMQ's Unpacked every week? Okay, so on, on a Friday, we have our enrichment activities on Friday afternoon. So there's things like combined, combined cadet force, Duke of Edinburgh, sport leaders and things, and a politics club. And that politics club is about 10 of us, and we talk about the themes of the week. We have a politics quiz. And then the last bit is we watch PMQs Unpacked, and then we pause it like you yourselves pause it, and then we talk about what the answer is going to be and how they're doing. And that's the discussion. And it sort of really helped the guys sort of get a handle of um, of the, the themes of politics, you know, improve their sort of political literacy. So you're sort of doing PMQs Unpacked, Unpacked. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, using, I'm using it as a teaching aid. Yeah. Great. So, uh, Devon, what's, uh, what have you made of, uh, of doing that? Because obviously it's been quite a vibe in PMQs in the last few months. Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, then Rishi Sunak. Yeah. What, have you, what, what have you made of watching, watching back PMQs unpacked? It's sort of the, the way politicians answer is uh, very different to perhaps what you'd want. Um, <laughs> it's a very diplomatic yeah, way of putting it. But very little. I've noticed that when you get asked a question, particularly Rishi Sunak in the last couples, and more so to Liz Trust, they just don't answer the question. They talk about something else, perhaps. And perhaps of a prime minister, you'd expect them to know the issue well enough to be able to to speak about the question and answer it. Yeah, I suppose, um, to be fair, they, they haven't got many sort of air miles under their belt so far. So they, yeah, yeah. over time, they will learn more more things. Um, Jack, what have you made it? Because actually, the last, you could argue the last few weeks have been slightly duller. You know, the stakes aren't quite as high. Do you do you like all the Yabu stuff or, or would you rather have more sort of detailed policy stuff? Well, I think over the past few weeks, there's definitely been, like Devin said, an avoidance on the policy questions. Whenever Keir Starmer comes at Rishi Sunak with a... A good question, he seems to just avoid it and sort of bring up Jeremy Corbyn instead. So I think I would definitely prefer it if the Prime Minister took a stance and answered the question. I think it would be a lot more helpful for everybody and actually set out what he wants to achieve by the next election and see how he plans on rescuing his party from complete destruction. Uh, and Max, what do you think? Is Keir Starmer's getting better at it, isn't he? We've definitely seen, I think, if we compare it to maybe this time last year, he has got better. He's a bit sharper. He's a bit bolshier. Mm, uh, yeah, I'd agree. Um, I think you can still tell that his past is a lawyer in the way he, he approaches it. But I think he's be, been a bit less passive, perhaps, in how he, how he attacks the government. And it's working. I mean, all he really needs to do is just sit back and watch um, the Tories just collapse on themselves. But... Um, yeah, you can certainly tell he's been more on the offensive recently than in years past. Just finally then, I want to ask you all what you all think, because uh, there's a lot in the news uh, that he could choose. What do you think Keir Starmer will go on? I'll come through, uh, uh, ask you. Well, in fact, I'll ask Tim Shipman first, because give you a bit of time just to think about it. Tim Shipman's here, to, uh, Chief of Commentator for the Sunday Times. What do you think Keir will go on? Ooh. Oh, you don't know either. I'll let you what? think about that then, and I'll ask... Uh, well, he's going to hammer some of his similar themes on the economy, I would yeah. think. Um, but... Uh... It's one of those weeks where he could take a range of approaches, yeah. I think. De Devon, what do you think? Uh, I think you, you should probably ask about Lady Moan and the PPM Munro stuff. Because uh, what did she say? She didn't benefit financially, so she didn't declare it. And then she got 29 million in profits. This is Michelle, Michelle Moan in the uh, the PPE contracts. Uh, that yeah, feeds that, into that the doesn't, sort of... That doesn't kind of represent what he's trying to get across about the Tories being like this sort of elitist... Uh, sort of club and that they don't care about citizens in, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, during the pandemic. I, I don't think there's much else he could use. What about you, Jack? What do you, if you were advising Keir Starmer, what would you suggest he go on? For Keir Starmer, I think, well, it's been a sort of a very 
quiet week for politics. There's been a lot more smaller stories that he could definitely focus on, but not one big issue. Like Devon said, I'd say the biggest issue definitely is Lady Moan and all her antics in the House of Lords. <laughs> but um, there is, there's um, Sunak's policy on China. Is it tough enough for yeah. Labour? Is it tough enough for Keir Starmer? Um, That's an interesting like question. We don't, we don't very often hear from Keir Starmer on foreign policy. So we're interested to see where we came on that. Right then, here we go. It's time for this. PMQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Tim Shipman. And Tim Shipman is here in the studio. You can listen along on Times Radio. You can watch along on the Times Radio YouTube channel. Give you a wave if you are watching. Let us know uh, where you are watching. Uh, Tim Shipman, we've been talking about lunches. Mm. The French... Uh, I'm very unfamiliar with the concept of lunch. Uh, the longest lunch you've ever had? Oh, um, I think in the good old days of Sunday journalism, a Tuesday lunch could Rolled often, could often become dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Let's put it that way. Very. Rarely these days, I should stress. No, of course, but, you're working very hard. But not. I mean, it's not wholly unheard of. No, but, uh, I can't remember the last time I rolled into dinner and did a, you know, a double bubble with the same guest. That's having children for you as well. Certainly is. Yeah. Uh, what do we expect from today? It's been a sort of quiet week politically. The government's plan to make politics boring, suck the auction out of thing, don't put ministers up on the round every day. It's slightly working for them, isn't it? Yes, I saw one of... Uh... Sunak's people last night um, at a book launch and they were sort of saying, well, you know, um, we're getting a bit of grief for this. But actually, their take is that the public's a bit sick of politics um, and actually wants to hear a bit less from uh, Downing Street and a bit less sort of, you know, the PM chipping into everything. Um, it's a process that began when Tony Blair decided he needed to comment on what was going on in Coronation Street, yeah. and we've never really kind of lost it but since. But all incoming prime ministers say they're going to do They that. do, but this lot seem to be sticking to it, at least for now. Yeah. But the problem is you can never... Unless you're on the front foot controlling the news agenda, things will keep happening, and at yeah. some point you will be forced to kind of get off your and sunbed I suppose in and a way, say something. It's almost, it makes more sense to try and lock things down when you're well ahead. It makes... You know, Rishi Sunak at some point is going to need to find some way of shifting the political weather because at the moment he's a long way behind. He is, and it's not moving much. Um, I think you know. I think they think the public's bored of politics and bored of the Tory psychodrama, and they want to sort of look less psychodramatic. I think their mental feeling is if they can get into the new year and get towards the next budget in March, that might be the time you start to look a bit more like a political party doing some clever things and. Yeah, forming some dividing lines. And there's already talk of a relaunch, reboot series of speeches in the well, new year. Well, I mean, Liz Truss was only there for 44 days and she had three relaunches. <laughs> so um, Rishi Sunak's done all right so, so far. Come around. Not to effect, you know, I mean, yeah. you know, as people, some people may have read at the weekend, that he's getting tough. You know, they were telling us me that at the, at the week. You know, he wants to get tough. Look like he's tough on things, which is interesting. Which is a response the, exactly. to Keir Starmer calling him weak every week. I did um, notice that your big read at the weekend uh, drew on some of the themes we've we've, we've teased out in PMQs. Recently. Exactly. Well, the, the you know, weak, weak, weak stuff from uh, from yeah, Keir Starmer. It's interesting that. Yeah, it is. Uh, right, but don't forget you are uh, listening along. On maybe you're on the app. Maybe on your smart oh, speaker. Don't forget maybe on your football analogies. Oh, Ye gods, are we going to get football analogies? Uh, today? Well, it was interesting last week. Keir Starmer went quite hard on the football and Rishi Sunak ignored him completely. Yes, but Rishi Sunak has now put out a picture of him watching the football. Watching the football. Looked Both a little bit like sort of junior goggle box, didn't it? He was in a sort of group of uh, school children. <laughs> About the same size as them. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, well, in fact, they both did. Rishi Sunak and Kistama put out photos of themselves watching the football last night. Both of their sleeves rolled up because that's what you yeah, do if you're watching David the football. Cameron. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, you can watch along on the YouTube channel. Uh, we've got someone in West Ealing. Uh, Siri says, last call to put the kettle on. Uh, Roger's got coffee in hand in Gravesend. Dave's got popcorn at the ready. Uh, there's Stephen in Taunton. Uh, Steve in High from Dartmoor Brewery. Feel free to send us any samples. Um, uh, in time for Christmas. Uh, Matt's in Liverpool. Uh are getting time for Christmas. Let's have them for next Wednesday. Well, I'm not here next week. So, oh. Yeah. Uh, I'm on a boat. The mind boggles. Yeah, with 2,000 times readers. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, watch along on the YouTube channel then. Uh, I think we're ready. Here we go. We can go live to the House of Commons for question number one from Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. May I join the Prime Minister in saying, well done, England, and I hope we can say that next week and the week after. Yeah, yeah. Commiserations to Wales, so I'm sure we'll be back in the World Cup tournament before too long. And of course, Mr Speaker, we mark years. that tomorrow is World AIDS Day. 
Mr Speaker, Winchester College has a rowing club, a rifle club, an extensive art collection. They charge over £45,000 a year in fees. Why did he hand them nearly £6 million of taxpayers' money this year in what his levelling up secretary calls egregious state support? Let's just jump in there. Yes. Uh, there's a lot there to uh, to explain. Uh, what's the, why, why is he alighted on Winchester College? Uh, because Rishi Sunak was the head boy of Winchester College, and Rishi Sunak also has given money to Winchester College in order to fund bursaries for poor students, which I'm sure we'll be hearing about in a moment. Keir Starmer would like to take away the charitable status, um, and that's the reference to the uh, six million quid of taxpayers' money. Um, Tories say if you have the charitable status, you can force the public schools to work with um, uh, the state schools and give them access to some of those facilities. Um, Labour thinks this is just chucking money at the rich. Um, a lot of other Tories would tell you, well, if you take away the, um, the charitable tax break, the only people who will be able to afford to go to these schools will be the children of Russian, Chinese and Arab potentates um, rather than your other humble people, Brit. Your, your humble uh, people who can afford 30 grand a year. Uh, will have to be forced to send their children to a state school. and But what's interesting about this is that clearly Keir Starmer's uh, taking on this argument, but he was on the front of the Daily Mail two days running, basically the same story. Yep. Uh, the, the Keir Starmer's class war, and he's clearly decided that today's the day he lead wants into to... Lean into it. Well, and it's very it. like the non-dom stuff, isn't it? It's yeah, an yeah. issue that probably triggers most voters who think it's yeah. kind of unfair, and it's also a clever little attack on Mr Sunak and his uh, privilege and wealth. So it's quite smart. That was the question. Let's get the answer for Rishi Sunak. Did he hand them nearly £6 million of taxpayers' money this year in what his levelling up secretary calls egregious state support? Yeah. 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 Mr Speaker, I'm pleased he wants to talk about schools because we've recently announced billions more funding for our schools. We're, we're helping millions of the most disadvantaged children catch up with their lost learning. And we're driving up school standards, Mr Speaker. But during COVID, during COVID, he wanted to keep schools closed. We shouldn't be surprised because I listen to parents and he listens to his union paymasters. Well, there was a lot of that we had. That's properly old school. He wanted to keep schools closed. That's, a, that's one even Boris Johnson had stopped using. We had union paymasters. Uh, which is uh, another favourite, and uh, the, the the Secretary of State who once called egregious state support for private schools. That was Michael Gove in a column in uh, a Times column in February 2017. He said, uh, how could this be justified? I asked the question in genuine, honest inquiry. If Times readers can tell me why we should continue to provide such egregious state support to the already wealthy so they might buy advantage of their own children, I would be fascinated. Uh, quite. And... Um... Gabe's interesting on education because he was obviously this sort of uh, reforming education secretary that put a lot of the union's noses out of joints, but he was also resolutely anti-grammar schools, uh, which is not that popular with the Tory party, yeah. and, he, and he was pretty harsh on, uh, uh, you know, charitable status for uh, for private schools as well. So, yeah, he's a bit of a thorn in the side of yeah. a lot of conventional Tories on education. I thought it was a pretty boilerplate response from Rishi Sunak, so let's see if, uh, if Keir Starmer does any better with question number two. Mr Speaker, his levelling up secretary, I see him down there, who, after all, was education secretary for four years, Michael said you could scarcely find a better way of ending burning injustices than scrapping these hands out. Yeah, yeah. And here's why, and he talks about driving up standards, just down the road in Southampton, and he'll know this, four in every ten pupils fail their English or maths GCSE yeah, yeah. this year. Four in ten. Is that £6 million of taxpayers' money better spent on rifle ranges in Winchester or driving up standards in Southampton? Well, well Mr Speaker, he, he talks about school standards. It's under, it's, it's under a Conservative government, and thanks to the reforms of the former Education Secretary, that now almost 90% of schools are good or outstanding. But, Mr Speaker... When, Mr. Speaker, whenever, whenever, Mr. Speaker, whenever he attacks me about where I went to school, he is attacking the hard-working aspiration of millions of people in this country. 
He's attacking people like my parents, Mr. Speaker. This is a country that believes in opportunity, not resentment. He doesn't understand that, and that's why he's not fit to lead. Ooh, that's a bit. Every time you complain about tax breaks for private schools, you're attacking my parents. Yeah, and don't forget, when he had his back to the wall on the non-dom status of his wife, people who were so inclined can go back and look at the Sun interview that he gave at the time. And it was quite sort of chippy. He didn't like it up him, as they used to say yeah. on Dad's Army. Um, and that was, you know... Yes, a lot of Tories love that message. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of voters like the message of aspiration. And Labour has discovered over the years, time and again, that attacking better-off people doesn't always win you votes from the less well-off because a lot of less well-off people would quite like to be better off one day and they quite like the idea of yeah. working their way up and working hard and getting on and, you know, some of them may dream of sending their kids to a private school. Um, but there's there's not as many people like Rishi Sunak's parents as there are people who are probably uh, annoyed and resentful about exactly. that Exactly. Kind of there, there are, and, there and are more brave people game. with an aspiration of sending their kids to a good state school or even, but you know, aspirations stretching to putting the heating on. You know, in terms of where the public mood is right now. And that's the point, I think. This is, a, you know, the context of this is a cost-of-living crisis and a Prime Minister who has had it fairly easy during his life. Um, and nobody doubts that his parents work very hard and anyone who knows Rishi Sunak knows he works like a Trojan uh, and has all his life and has put, you know, um, getting on above everything else. Um, but, you know, this looks like pretty sensible politics to me from, from Labour and it's, you know, it's a case of... They've done some good research, yeah. they've got some good quotes, they've tied it together with a, an issue that personally attacks Sunak and has a wider kind of locus. You yeah. know, it, it, to me, it looks quite sensible. Does look quite smart. Michael Gove is on the front bench, sort of shouting down. Uh, sitting next to Rishi Sunak is um, uh, the International Trade Secretary, Kami uh, Radinok, deep in uh, her iPad, as far as I could tell. This was all face lit she up. She may be watching us. <laughs> Hi, Kemi. Uh, right, let's go back to the House of Commons. This is question number three. Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker. If he thinks the route to better education in this country is tax breaks for private schools in the hope they might hand that sum that down to state school, that's laughable. Trickle-down education is nonsense. Uh, Mr Speaker, it's not just the levelling up secretary. His education minister sitting there asks, how much better would it be if Conservatives got rid of these handouts? Yeah, yeah. He talks about his record. It's simple. He can carry on being pushed around by the lobbyists, yeah. giving away £1.7 billion to private schools every year, or we can put that money to good use. Yeah. End the Tory scandal. He talks about his record. Hundreds of thousands of children leaving school without the qualifications that they need. I've made my choice. What's his? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, we're improving school standards for every pupil in this country. It's our reforms that are leading to us marching up the PISA league tables for reading, for writing, more good and outstanding schools, more investment in every single school. But he talks about choice. This is about supporting aspiration, Mr Speaker, and that's what this government is proud to do. I think what we're seeing here is 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 Rishi Sunak sort of holding the line. It's quite a difficult argument that it's he's It's a difficult making. line to hold, but look, there's a bit of noise behind him and the Tory MPs actually liked the previous answer and cried for more. So um, last week, we called it pretty firmly for Starmer on the politics. There were other commentators who thought in the room... Dan Hodges of the Mail on Sunday being one of them, that Sunak had kind of repelled it quite easily. Yeah. And and it, and in the chamber where he was sitting, he felt like Sunak had sort of seen off Starmer. Um, and, you know, these are interesting different perspectives. To us, we were looking at the politics of it and we thought but I suppose it's an also... easy Starmer win and it's looking like the same here. But if you're a Tory MP where he may be getting mullered to the pavement <laughs> and coming out as a a mere smear um, yeah. on a piece of concrete. He's not doing that. He's at least putting up a fight. And, and you shout aspiration, and that's a, that's a sort of Pavlovian response for a lot of Tory MPs. I suppose that, that that ultimately keeps you at 26% in the polls and Labour It keeps you at 26 50. not at 
21. Yeah, but it doesn't, it doesn't get, get it doesn't get you to 42. Yeah, you know. exactly. Uh, the uh, the other education minister uh, Keir Starmer referred to is Rob Halfon. Robert Halfon, now uh, former chair of the Education Select Committee, uh, he's now a, a education minister. Uh, he uh, argued again in 2017. Presumably, there was a big row going on about this at the time, uh, and uh, he said that they should end. The across the board charitable status. This must have passed me by in 2017. I think I only wrote about Brexit in 2017. <laughs> there was obviously something occurring. Uh, uh, he said his party should confront the shibboleth. He said August 2017. There we go. There's obviously a row that kept everyone busy over the summer over months. The summer months. Trickle down education as well from Starmer. That was a. That's quite that's, nice. It's sort of nice, but it's this kind of quote that. Works a bit better in the Westminster Village yeah. than in the There's quite a lot pubs and bars of Darlington. Uh, we will uh, we'll go back and ask our students actually what they make of all this uh, before uh, twelve thirty from uh, Plymouth College. Um, but let's go back now to the House of Commons. Question number four from Keir Starmer. Mr. Speaker, he really does need to get out more. And he talks he talks about aspiration, Mr. Speaker. They are killing off aspiration in this country, and it's not just education. Why is the dream of home ownership far more remote now than it was when his party came into power 12 years ago? Prime Minister. Well, Mr Speaker, what have we done in those 12 years? The highest, the highest number of new homes started in 15 years. Largest, largest number of first-time buyers in 20 years. He, talk, he talked about 10 years ago. What do we inherit? The lowest level of house building in a century. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's bold, isn't it, at this point in time to be saying we built lots of houses um, yeah. when he's, he's just pulled the um, legislation that would have allowed you to build more houses because a bunch of his MPs didn't like it. Yes, and, and there's a rebellion on several fronts, but uh, house building is, uh, is one of them. I can't think of that if... But the most new homes started in 15 years. Doing that in your 12 years, that just means we've gone back essentially to the level of house building we saw under new Labour. That sounds very much we like that. We probably need to dig out the stats for that. We're not totally sure. But again, Keir Starmer tried to throw... Uh, picking the... the, the polit There's no doubt that the political operation of the Labour Party is much improved. Well, I mean, it's so improved that they're busy sending me messages at the moment about Ooh, you know, who's texting the you? approach that they're, that they're taking. I'm not getting um, any. It's all on background, so all I can't on. quote any of it. But it's um, you know they're trying to make an argument that um, I think they're going to turn around the house building stuff and kind of make it about aspiration themselves. So it's an interesting uh, yeah you know bit weaving of all that together. We'll it's an interesting exactly. argument they're mounting. Um, uh, let's see where Keir Starmer takes it uh, next. Mr. Speaker, would you believe it? Mr Speaker, the simple fact is this. Every year, the age at which people can buy their first home goes up. At this rate, under this government, a child born in the UK today wouldn't be able to buy their first home until they're 45. Now, I love my kids, but I don't want to cook them dinner in 30 years' time. Now, Mr Speaker, I, I, I've heard... I've heard... I've heard, he, I've heard he's having a relaunch. Apparently, it's called Operation Get Tough. Tim Shipman's own so, uh, piece at the weekend. So how tough is he going to get with his backbenchers who are blocking the new homes this country so badly needs? Mr Speaker, we're delivering record numbers of new homes under this government. That's what we're doing. He, he, talks, he talks about toughness, Mr Speaker. He's too weak to stop dozens of his own MPs joining the picket lines. So what, if, he, if, he wants to support, if he wants to support those hard-working families and show some leadership, why doesn't he confirm right now that no Labour MPs are going to join those picket lines? So I was slightly bemused as to how he suddenly got onto picket lines. Well, and, I mean, and it's, the weird it's the blue, pivot. It's the, the weird pivot. blue glow that's still lighting up Kemi. It was not a not a decorous pivot, I think it's fair to say. Um, but uh, he asked you about know, houses, or what about picket lines? Well, you know, he's at least uh, responding uh, in terms of uh, some of the rhetoric. He's just pumping it back. I mean, you know, this is very much a back foot um, line holding operation. Um, people will uh, agree or disagree about how well the line is being held. Um, 
that felt like one of the uh, one of the ones where the bullets got through and rattled around the room a bit before they were repelled. Um, and just explain Operation Get Tough. Well, I mean, um, it's Sunak. You know, they're conscious of of what. Uh, has been going on here and, and there's perception amongst these MPs that he's a bit wet on Brexit and he's a bit wet on crime and he's a bit wet on immigration and then they're, you know, um, beginning to try and show that, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of action on uh, these protests and people closing motorways. Um, the police are getting a rocket and being told to use the laws they've got and there's a suggestion they might get some tougher guidance uh, to enable them to remove people from uh, the gantries on the M25. Um there's a lot of work going on with uh, Number 10 and the Home Office on uh, illegal migration. Um, and, you know, they're trying to draw, draw attention to all of that um, to try and... Uh, I think it's as much about convincing their MPs as it is about convincing the public at this stage. But, um, you know, that he's got harder-line views than is widely perceived. Um, whether that makes him tough is a whole different issue. Um, and... Uh, it, the more you draw attention to it, you know, as we've seen, that yeah, gives Starmer a little bit of an opening as well. And actually, not every Conservative MP agrees with him on all those things. And so, you know, at the moment, the sort of the, the centrist, the One Nation Tory lot are sort of happy. They thought they were getting one of their guys back. Uh, and then if he shifts to the other way, he upsets them. So, and then he gets a reputation in, we can see in six months, where we get, you know, flip-flop allegations and he's all over the place. Um, let's uh, go back to the House of Commons. I'm still digging around these stats because Rishi Sunak's claim we are delivering record numbers of new homes. I'm not sure is necessarily going to stack up. Uh, so I'll, um, I'll dig around in the charts uh, while we go back for question number five. Mr Speaker, whichever way you slice it, it's always the same. Whether it's private schools, oil giants or those who don't pay their taxes here, every week... He hands out cash to those that don't need it. Every week he gets pushed around and every week he gets weaker. But I can help him with this one. He doesn't need to do another grubby deal if he wants to defeat that amendment from his anti-growth backbenchers on national targets for housing, Labour will lend him the votes to do so. Country before party, that's the Labour way. Why doesn't he try it? This week, I, I think, I think we we did we we did hear too weak to confirm. No one on the picket line. But, Mr. Speaker, it's the same old Labour ideas: more debt, more inflation, more strikes, and more migration. He's too. He tells his party what they want to hear. I'll take the difficult decisions for this country, and that's the choice, Mr. Speaker. It's the politics of yesterday with him, or the future of the country with me. Politics of yesterday with him and the future of the country with me. I, I, they're going to struggle, aren't they, to paint Keir Starm? I mean, Jeremy Corbyn looked like a 1970s burning brazier unionist. Well, I mean, dear old Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, he hadn't changed any of his views yeah. since 1978, and it became, it looked a lot of the time like he hadn't changed any of his clothes as well. So, but, uh, you know, that's not the case with Starmer. Um, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, that's sort of... I don't think they've quite... The Tories have quite got the slogan there, but you can see what they're kind of uh, angling for. You know, I'm the serious bloke making the decisions and the other fellow over there is playing politics. But yeah. um, I thought Starmer's sort of... You know, he hands out cash to people who don't need it. You know, he gets weaker every week. Um, those look like lines that are further down the developmental path, shall we say, uh, in terms of hitting with the public. Um, but, you know... Sunak's not rolled over in any of these sessions and, you know, there'll be MPs who just want to keep surviving who will think that, you know, he's doing OK. Holding holding course, steadying the ship and all of that. Yeah, yeah, which is sort of what he wants to achieve. He just wants to look, you know, as I say, certainly until the spring, I think. And hope the goal something... is just to be alive, given... <laughs> hope that something turns up. Uh, you'll be pleased to know I've been looking at the, uh, the Department for Community and Local Government's uh, stats on uh, house building, the uh, live tables for uh, quarterly ho homes started, all dwellings in quarter two, so that's January, April, May, April, May, June, it's technically Boris Johnson, not uh, wishing that, 54,540. I think you have to go back to 1988 to get higher than that, 55,580. Uh, so 
but it's not a record, but it is slightly better than I thought. But then that is only quarterly, and uh, previously the, the figures have been terrible. So anyway. Astonishing level of multi-skilling on your part Thanks as well. Thanks for that. Uh, Andrea Wood's been in touch. This is so boring. I don't know if that's you and me or... or... Get the kids back on. <laughs> well, go on then, let's do that. Let's check in with our, uh, our students from Plymouth College. Uh, they are members of the Politics Club. Uh, we've got Devon, Jack and Max and their teacher, Richard. Uh, Richard, who knew uh, that, um, that private schools would end up dominating PMQs on the week you're on? Yeah, that's... Uh, but I think, I think if you look, uh, that latest biography of Harold Wilson by Nick Thomas Simons, I think it mentions there in 1964, Labour was on about doing something to the uh, private schools. And here we are in 2022 and nothing's happened, so... Nothing has changed as they... Uh, Mr Blair didn't quite ever get round to that, did yeah, he? The, the yeah. public school educated Mr Blair. Strange that. Uh, what, did, what did you make of it? Uh, um, then uh, let's start with you, Devon. Uh, again, he, like particularly, as I was saying before, Sunak seems to be trying to present himself as not weak or decisive, whereas Starmel is kind of going for the he's weak. And he's kind of doing that by not necessarily answering the question and talking about strikes and unions and things, but it's quite hard to paint Starmer, who was a lawyer, as the like the head of strikes and everything. So it's a, yeah. Uh, and what about you, Jack? What did you think of it? I mean, clearly, you know, we should point out Plymouth College is a, is a private school, so you're, 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 you're very schooling being battered around in the House of Commons. What did you make of it, Jack? Well, um, I obviously have opinions on the private school issue, but I think that definitely an interesting approach from Keir Starmer. He sort of avoided all the topics you definitely expect him to make a scene out of, like moan, rather than his bullying. And yeah. he's approached it in a sort of way that says the Conservatives are stuck in their traditional ways instead of attacking what they're doing right now. And I suppose what was interesting was because it's been on the... You know, to take an issue where he's being attacked on the Daily Mail two days running and try and turn it into a positive shows a degree of confidence, I suppose, in the uh, in the Labour operation. What did you make of it, Max? Um, I thought it, is, it was a strange angle of attack. I feel like he could have brought up some of the other issues. But I think I think he, he did try to back up Rishi Sunak into the corner. But if in doubt, uh, he, can, he, he did bring up the picket lines. And I'm surprised he didn't bring up the member for Islington North. Uh, yeah, at least we didn't. I think after we had that polling that showed it, nobody had a clue what he was talking about. Maybe he's decided to. Uh, <laughs> maybe he's decided to drop that. Uh, we've had loads of messages in actually about this decision. Stephen, uh, the 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 topic uh, from uh, Keir Starmer. Stephen says, "Matt, I'm sufficiently poor that my son was awarded a bursary at a well-known public school. I'll be ever, forever indebted for his education, which is accessible to all who apply. Maybe Keir would like to do so for his children, as long as he's prepared to pay and invest in his uh, children's future." And William says, are we private school fees? I went to a comprehensive of no children, so I, I hope I'm reasonably objective. Food and other essentials don't attract VAT. Is education not essential? Further, every parent who pays school fees saves a place in the state system. I know plenty of parents who stretch the limit paying school fees and adding VAT will mean their children going into the state system. The country would be worse off with additional state places costing more than the VAT received on private school fees uh, would produce. Uh, and then uh, further to the point that you've, the, all of you have been making, maybe next week Sunak could simply post his answers in advance, given they bear no relation to any of the questions. So uh, finally then, uh, chaps, I'll come around to all of you. Who do you think won today, if we're going to reduce it to a who's up, who's down? Who do you think won today, Devin? I think Starmer was more convincing. Jack? Um, particularly. Uh, yeah, I'd agree. Starmer, I think, won this week. And Max? Uh, yeah, I definitely agree. I think Starmer won that. Well, there we are. There we are. R Richard, are I allowed to ask you who you think won? I, I think, yeah, Star Keir Starmer seems to get stronger every week and uh, and uh, Richie is uh, he's sort of clambering around for uh, for answers and he's not really cutting the mustard at the moment. He needs to get tougher. It, yeah, well, as, as he has Here been told. Really good to yeah. speak to you, gents. Thanks so much for that. That's uh, Richard Atkinson, is a teacher at Plymouth College, and Devon, Jack and Max. And if you if you listen or watch along in a a luncheon club or a politics club, if you want to come on and do uh, uh, unpack PMQs with us, we're lovely to uh, lovely to have you on. Interesting that um, uh, uh, Tim and I suppose the, the the point about Keir Starmer doing well, he's now been doing it for what three years, 
two years. Yeah. Coming up. Uh, uh, you know, and I think we'd say he's been doing well for about nine months. Yes, exactly. He's got better at it uh, more recently, just as the Tory party have gone through some uh, apprentices. So maybe, maybe you know, give it 18 months and, and Rishi Sunak might be better at it. Well, he might be, but it might be a bit late by within <laughs> 18 months. No, Starmer's just got a sort of easier manner about him than he used to have. I mean, he's getting good advice and he's being pumped some good lines. But even that bit about, you know, I love my kids, but, you know, I don't want to be cooking them dinner in 30 years. It's not a great joke, but it's reasonably lighthearted and it's sort of, it just felt quite it, natural. It felt delivered it was like deli he just thought of it. Yes, whether even or not he had. Yeah. Whereas for a long time the joke felt like they would be you know there was a sort of semaphore arrived and, and, then, and then the carrier pigeon and then you know yeah. and finally the line arrived and it tended to land um with all the grace of a you know yeah. uh, a dead pigeon so he's getting funnier the, the, and the, that combined with sharper political attacks is definitely having an impact let's go as we always like to on a wednesday it's ian blackford yeah yeah, yeah. thank you mr speaker i'm sure the whole house will want to join me in sending prayers and condolences to the wife of Doddy Weir, who sadly yeah. passed away at the weekend. The absolute giant of a man, an inspirational figure in Scottish rugby, and someone who raised £8 million for M&D charities over the course of the last six years. Our thoughts and prayers are with Cathy, with Hamish, with Angus and with Ben. Mr Speaker, let me wish everyone a happy St Andrew's Day. And those that know anything about St Andrew know that he's not just the patron of Scotland, he's celebrated right across Europe. That is why it is such a sad sight to watch this Prime Minister rammed through a bill that would rip up 4,000 pieces of European law. Laws that protect workers' rights, food standards and environmental protections. And it's an even worse sight watching the leader of the Labour Party desperately trying to out-Brexit the Prime Minister. Swiss-style deal. Brexit is now the elephant in the room that neither the Tories or Labour are willing to confront. When will the Prime Minister finally see reality and admit that Brexit is a significant long-term cause of the UK economic crisis? Well, Mr Speaker, can I start by joining my honourable friend in offering our condolences to the family and friends of Doddy Weir, and I'd also like to pay tribute to him for his campaign to raise awareness of MND, uh, which has made a big difference. Now, Mr Speaker, straightforwardly, I was proud to support Brexit. It was the right thing for this country. It, allow, it, allow, it allows us to, first of all, get control of our borders, which is incredibly important, and reduce migration, all of which, Mr Speaker, I know... The, uh, I, 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 I noticed what he said, and I agree with him, actually, about the slight dexterity of the Leader of Opposition on these, uh, on these topics of free movement. And I know he'll join me in reminding the Leader of Opposition about his previous promise to defend free movement of people, not something that we support, Mr Speaker. But we're also seizing the economic opportunities, deregulating and signing trade deals around the world. That's how we'll drive growth and prosperity. In black God, what's happened to uh, uh, Lindsay Hoyle chipping in to say... Get on with it. It was a long-winded from um, uh, Ian Blackford. And then the follow-up. I was uh, proud to support Brexit, says uh, Rishi. I suspect that's a clip that might appear in rival parties' uh, election um, coverage. A little you... bit past tense as well, interestingly. Yes, um, uh, uh, because it, it, it did the right thing for the country. And we've got control of our borders to reduce migration. Hence why there were slight chortles. Yeah, and also then sort of slightly awkward going, well, actually, I agree with you, Ian Blackford, in having a go at Keir Starmer because he keeps changing his mind about free movement and you all want free movement and he used to want it and now he's pretending he doesn't want blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It's all a bit complicated, I'm not sure. After about the third subclause, I think most people had probably uh, uh, turned off. Um, <laughs> well, let's, let's not dwell on it because other people might turn off. Uh, the main response to that, David's tweeted in saying, the Christmas tree's looking splendid. Yeah, you, if you go on the YouTube channel, you can see our Christmas tree out the window. Uh, which is nice. Uh, I think we, let's do uh, one more quote. Apparently we found Chesney Hawks. So mm. we'll speak to Chesney Hawks in a moment. First, uh, let's have... Are we doing Esther McVeigh? Tory MP? No, we're not. Abena Apong Asare, the Labour MP. Is that right? OK, here we go. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The two boys, 16-year-old boys, Charlie Batalo and Kiani Sianko, were tragically killed in my constituency of Irith and Tansmead this weekend. My heart goes out to the families and friends left behind. 
We really need to come across the House to address and tackle serious youth violence. So can I ask the Prime Minister what he is doing to address knife crime epidemic? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Prime Minister. I, uh, I thank the Honourable Lady for her question and join her in expressing my condolences to the family and friends of the two boys. I also read about it. It's an awful tragedy. Um, she rightly asked what we are doing to make our streets safer and stamp out the scourge of night crime. We're boosting the number of police officers, as she'll know, 15,000 on our way to 20,000. And we're also giving them the powers they need to get knives off our streets, including lifting restrictions on stop and search and introducing new court orders to target known knife offenders. I agree with her this is something we need to do more on, and she should know that the government will be fully committed to tackling it. Gordon Henderson. Uh, worth highlighting that, Tim Sherman, because there's a backbench MP asking, you know, doing what PMQs is is probably better at, uh, raising issues in their constituency and putting the Prime Minister on the spot. Yeah, and a grown-up response from Starmer, but didn't really um, shed a great deal of light. Um, I wondered whether he would use the opportunity to show how he was getting tough on knife crime, but uh, uh, you'll get plenty of Tories complaining that that's as much for the Mayor of London as it is for them, and uh, not a lot's happened there either. So, yeah. uh, but it wasn't a party political thing. Um, you're right; it's uh, you know it's a serious problem, and uh, it's one of the more depressing aspects of modern life for those of us with kids living in London as well. Uh, Tim, lovely to see you. Uh, Tim Shipman, what, can we, do we know what we can look forward to at the weekend yet? It's a bit early. Let's wait and see. Yeah, see what lunch yields. I, I sort of know roughly what I'm doing, but uh, events may intervene, you never know. Uh, lovely stuff. It's Tim Shipman, Chief Political Commentator of the Sunday Times. You'll be here next week. Patrick McGuire will be here next week. I'll be on the boat trying to tune in. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.